here. So how are we doing tonight? Good, good. Yes, word came in uh, just before we started where uh, the Lakers at least avenged ourselves against Boston this week, so uh, they won. So uh, yes, it's true. It's true, although New England did pound the rim, so it was a whole other subject. But hey, we're looking at a series that we're in, Living Life in the Kingdom. And uh, we started this series here a few weeks ago, and we've been talking about um, some different things. So what I'd like to do is find out how, how we're doing, find out if we're actually communicating or if this is uh, not communicating. Also, like uh, one of the things we talked about was the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? When you hear the term the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? They thought, oh, I never knew there was going to be a test. I would have listened good night. So. Anybody know what's the kingdom of God? How God lives through us. That would be part of it. Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is this. It is his reign. It is whenever and wherever his will is being done. See, a lot of times when we think of the kingdom, we think of kingdom in terms of like um, a place. Or we think of kingdom in terms of people. But it's not. It, it's his reign. It's where, wherever what God wants done is being done. So that's really the kingdom. It's, it's not that Jesus, what Jesus says over and over, his consistent message is, the kingdom of God is available to you. In other words, God's rule in your heart, God's reign in your heart, that's available to you right now. You can actually have that. That can be a part of, uh, of your life right now. When we looked last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, and we talked about how sometimes people see those as kind of a, you know, these are things you do, this is kind of a litmus test for you, or these are things you do to kind of, you know, uh, figure out if you're, you know, really a Christian or not. That's really, that's really not the case at all. What the Beatitudes are, really what they represent is kind of markers along the pathway of you entering into God's rule and reign and you walking with him. And the more you walk with him and the more you allow him to really be the boss in your life and to do that, these are kind of different markers that show up the different Beatitudes. You know, you find yourself to be, you know, hungering and thirsting for God. You find yourself to be, you know, uh, wanting a pure heart. You find yourself to be merciful to others. You find all those different things to be characteristics of yours. So what they really serve as is kind of a yardstick to show you how are you doing? Are you making progress? Are you moving along or are you not? That's really what the purpose of the Beatitudes are. And then we looked at ways that you can begin to practically grow in God being more boss of your life. We talked about three different ways that you could do it. Anybody remember any of the ways that you could actually begin to do that? Community. Hmm? Community. community. Yeah, community's one. As you really walk in community, that helps you learn how to really live under the lordship of Jesus. Any other, anybody else remember other ways? Hmm? Staying in step with the Spirit. That's exactly right. Paying attention to what is the Spirit of God wanting you to do. So, you know, asking the question, what should we be doing here, God? What, what, should, what should go on here? That's, that's another one. There was a third one as well. Remember what that was? Time in the Word. Yeah, time in the Word. Because God has already written down a lot of what he wants us to know. So if you want to know it, all you got to do is just get into his Word and find out. A lot of times people think, I wonder what God thinks about this. I think, that's easy. It's right over here. They're like, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's not hard. You know, just get in there and begin to find out. So directly following up on the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. He, he lays out a little passage here for the people, and he says this. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be saltiness? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but most everybody I know, they really desire for their life to be significant. I mean, they really desire for their life to count in some way. I, I rarely find a person that says, you know, really the goal of my life, I want to live, I want to die, and I want it to be like I never lived at all. I go, really? You know, no one ever says that. I mean, we want lives that actually count for something. We want lives that matter. We want lives that are significant. And yet, a lot of times as I have conversations with students and as I'm talking with them, they're talking about and they're planning for this, you know, great impact that they can make while at the same time they're kind of preparing themselves saying, well, but it's probably going to be kind of ordinary. It's probably not going to be that way. But maybe. And have kind of, you know, this dream of that. But when you look at it, you know, think of this crowd that Jesus spoke to. When Jesus is talking, and these are very, very ordinary people. Now, the disciples were pretty ordinary, but these people all around here, they're very ordinary people. And Jesus comes up, and he's talking to them. I mean, for them, they were people that were living under Roman occupation. They couldn't even decide their schedule. I mean, if one of them decided one day, I'm going to walk into town, and he starts heading into town, and all of a sudden, some Roman comes along and says, hey, here's my big, heavy pack. I want you to carry it for me, and I'm headed the opposite direction. He had to stop whatever he was doing, turn around, head the other way, do that. I mean, these guys could not even decide their own lives. But Jesus tells them, you know, but you can decide your destiny. You may not be able to decide your life, but you know, you can decide your destiny. You can really make an impact with your life. And he goes on, until this time, you know, the people, when he said this, these people must have thought, no. Because all of the difference makers that they were accustomed to, they were difference makers because they were born into position or they were, you know, the right ethnicity or they were the, you know, the right social people, the right culture. They were right. There was something that caused them to have a leg up on everybody else. But what Jesus does, he comes in and he totally obliterates that. He says, every kingdom citizen has been given significance. Every kingdom citizen has been given significance. You can have significance because of knowing. Paul later says this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Everyone who is in Christ is given the opportunity for significance. So can, can you imagine? I mean, think for a minute. Can you imagine how those words must have fallen on the people that were sitting there that day? I mean, they hear that and they're like, really? I can make a difference? And he was like, yeah. I mean, for them, they're sitting there thinking, they couldn't even dream of significance. I mean, that had been such a far thing. For, they couldn't even think about it. Can you imagine, I mean, what about like one of the gals that was sitting there today, one of the Gentile females that was sitting there that day? I mean, for them, women were just treated like, cattle. 
or something. And to hear Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. For them, they must have thought, no, no. I mean, there's no way. I mean, they shook their heads because, I mean, Jesus totally shook their entire world up when he said those words. So how were they to have influence and how were they to be difference makers? Well, Jesus tells us in these very verses, and that's what we're going to look at. He starts off, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that one thing alone right there kind of put in their mind an idea of value because salt was very valuable in that society. In fact, a lot of times when uh, the Romans were paying their armies, after they'd worked for a week, they would give them salt. That's how they would pay them. If you ever heard the expression, the guy's not worth his salt, that's where that comes from. It's because they used to pay them with salt. And what they would do is they would actually give it to them. It was a very valuable thing. They could trade it. They could, you know, use it for all kinds of things. So it was very valuable. And there were a lot of things that it meant that salt was used for. But I think two of the ones that that Jesus was really honing in on right here tonight we want to look at were one was flavoring and the other was preserving. Flavoring is simply this. You take ordinary things and you make them taste better. You take the ordinary and you make it taste better. That's what flavoring's all about. Have you ever eaten, like, have you ever gone over there? One day I made a mistake. I was in Trader Joe's and I was buying stuff back there because you need to buy things so you can park underneath. So I was buying something, you know, and they had, like, nuts back there. And I just went back and I'd bought nuts in there before, so it was no big deal. So I just scooped up the bag that looked the same. And I walked out and then I opened it up and I put some in my mouth and I was like, ah, you know, I was like, oh. It was unsalted nuts. Have you ever had those things? I mean, it's kind of like you're chewing on cardboard. You know, you're kind of like going, hmm, well, it's not bad. I mean, if you like cardboard. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just not good. And, and then I thought about, you know, boy, I thought about other things I'd eaten like that. You know, like eggs when they don't have salt or like other things when they just don't have salt. It's not like they're like horrible, but they just taste so much better with salt. And yet, you know, I've never yet had like eggs or nuts or anything like that with salt and then walked away and thought, wow, what great salt. No. I walked away and thought, wow, what great eggs or wow, what great nuts or wow, what great ever. You know, it was because the salt added flavor to that. That's what Jesus is talking about here. What he says is being salt means you take ordinary things and you make them better. So like you're a part of a study group. And just by the way that you flavor that study group, when other people walk away from that, they go, that was a good study group. They don't think, boy, that was a salty person. No, they don't think that, you know. They walk away thinking, that was a good study group. Why? It's more enjoyable. Or they get around you in class and they walk away thinking, I like that that class. I like that person. Why? Because you make the ordinary seem better. That's what it means to flavor. The other thing that is really, I think he meant was preserving. And that was one of the big functions of salt at the time. A lot of times they took meats and other things and put salt on them. What salt does is salt keeps things from deteriorating. It keeps them from falling apart. Now, what that really means for us today, we look around at situations where things are falling apart and we wade in 
and we act like salt. We begin to actually keep them from just falling all apart. You know, I remember when we were in grad school uh, back in the day, I was there and I worked at this one department store and one of the great sports in that department store was every time there was a break, like a lunch break or just one of the smaller breaks, people would gather in the break room and would have the ongoing effort of trying to rip management. And so they'd go, oh my gosh, did you see what Mr. Mims did today? Oh my gosh, you know, Mr. Lawson did such and such. Oh my gosh, and they would just go on and on and on. And I mean, you talk about falling apart, the morale of the place was falling apart. I mean, everyone's kind of, yeah, yeah, and they kind of drag around. And I remember thinking one day, you know, that's not good. There's gotta be something that could be different about that. Wonder what I could do. And I thought, well, I know what's not to do. You know, you don't walk in and go, let me tell you what the Bible says about doing that. That's all, you don't know that, that goes over real big, you know, kind of like a lead balloon. So, um, you know, I, I thought, no, you know what I'll do? So I had this idea. So I went in and there was this one gal that uh, she kind of was one of the ringleaders of starting all this up. And so the very first thing I did when she walked in uh, one day and she goes, well, and I said, oh, man, did you see what Mr. Lawson did today? And she goes, what? And I knew, boy, she was waiting for something juicy. I said, oh, he came out on the floor and he was helping Mary and them fold shirts. And he was, I said, he is a great guy. Silence. <laughs> I said, I really like him. Not as much as I like Mr. Mims, but I like Mr. Lawson. She goes, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. You know what? It was the most fun silence we'd had in that locker room for, I mean, for a while. We sat in there. But there began to be other things. You know, a couple of the other people, they began to pick up on that, and they'd come in, and they'd say something good. All of a sudden, the whole attitude of break time began to turn around. Instead of it being this session to rip everybody, people started using it as a time to find things good that other people were doing. All of that was just a simple thing of, you know what? Going into a situation, being salt. So that's one of the things that Jesus talks about. He says, you want to do that. He also mentions this. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, really what that means is this. Our lives are to be like little spotlights that draw the attention to God. Have you ever, if, you, if you're not sure what a spotlight is, walk out here about any night when you hear helicopters and you will see little spotlights drawing the attention not to God, but to whoever the guy is that's breaking into something down there. And so, you know, they kind of follow him around and they do that, you know. But have, have you ever noticed one of the weird things about us? We keep, as spotlights, we keep trying to figure out how can I turn that on me? You know, spotlights were never meant to be turned on you. Unless maybe one of the helicopters, you know, that's, no, probably not. But I mean, you know, they were never meant to be turned on you. The, the fact, spotlights, you never notice them if they're doing their job. Have you noticed that? You never really notice them. I mean, if all of a sudden, you know, on TV they're going, there they are, they're falling, and you watch the spotlight, and the spotlight's just going all over, looking everywhere else, and you see the guy running in and out of it everywhere, and you think, what are they doing? Their job is to follow. Their job is to call attention to him. See, that's what our lives are to be like. Our lives are to be focused on drawing people's attention towards God. That's one of the one of the functions of a light. The other thing about it is when he says, "You are the light of the world," it's not something that's just resident within us. 
But really, the light that's in us is like a reflection. It's the same thing that you have with like the sun and the moon. Our light comes as a reflection from walking with God. So the more we're around him, the more we're walking in his kingdom, the more we reflect him to other people. So what in the world, you know, if God set that up and he's made that so simple, what in the world could prevent us from being significant? I mean, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. All you have to do is just walk around, walk under his lordship, and he's pretty much guaranteed you will be salt, you will be light, you will make an impact. What could keep you from not making an impact? What could keep you from not making a difference? Two things, and he mentions those as well. Actually, three things, but one of them here. First one, he says, if a soul has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I don't know whether we have any, like, you know, chemist types in here or anything, but what you find is salt is very, it's a very simple thing. I mean, you know, you, you combine sodium and chlorine, and you get sodium chloride, and it's a very stable compound. I mean, you know what? It's not like something that falls apart. I mean, it's, it's pretty. In fact, the only way, the only way that salt loses its saltiness is if you take one of the essential elements out or if you add things in that were never meant to be there in the first place. It's only as you add in the impurities that the salt begins to lose its saltiness. And what you find is this. If you don't add in things that shouldn't be there and you keep the things in that should be there, you're not only going to be salt, you're going to be significant. And so one of the things he says, you know, you need to really watch how you do that. Then Jesus mentions the second one. He said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There again, how do you... How do you miss being significant? Well, one way there, not being visible. Not being visible. Um, you know, when he's talking about shining before others, he's talking about uh, doing that. One of the things he's talking about, you know, there are things that are to be visible. There's things that are to show in your life, and there's things that are not to show. You know, the things that are not to show are the things that actually helped you get to be salt and light in the first place. Like he talks about that, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, but he's talking about, you know, like in chapter six, he says, you know, when you pray, you know, just go in your closet and pray. You don't have to pray out, out, out in, in the open. You know, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He says, you know, when you, when you give, just give in secret. He said, when you, when you fast, walk around with a toothpick in your mouth, you know, don't walk around acting like, oh, oh poor me. I'm, he says, you know, there's things that aren't to show, but he says, the things that are to show are what kind of person you're becoming what is God developing you into that's what's to show loving that's to show merciful that's to show able to endure hardship that's to show peacemakers that's to show he said those are the kind of things that ought to be reflecting out through your life when people see those things then they really give honor they give glory to your father who's in heaven the second third aspect here, the second one under this, but the third aspect is if you want to not be significant, 
not illuminating, not illuminating. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that, because actually this right here, in fact, this verse right here, was one of the very things that brought Melinda and I to California years ago. Because at the time, I was working with a group called uh, the World Discipleship Development Foundation, a long name for a small group. Uh, but anyway, we were there, and uh, I'd been offered this uh, uh, position to go up to this place in Chicago and... and um, teach up there and they were going to pay for me um, getting a doctorate and they wanted me to teach at this place and and to travel around with this one guy who uh, who was a professor there and, and kind of uh, uh, meet with some guys and disciple some guys each year. And so I thought it was a seminary, this seminary called Trinity, Trinity Seminary. So I was, um, I was really thinking about that. I mean, and, and the opportunity to teach with this guy, I thought this will be so cool. I was really looking forward to it. And Melinda even said she would go up there, which Melinda thinks that you should never go up where it snows. I mean, she thinks that's out of the will of God. You know, but I mean, you know, uh, but I said, you know, she was even into it. She was like, sure, okay, great, Chicago, why not? We'll die. Uh, so, uh, you know, so, I mean, she was all into it. And, but there was something inside, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I kept, I kept thinking, yeah. And I kept thinking, you ought to be more excited about this. Why are you not excited? And I thought, I don't know. And I got up there. There was like, um, there were a bunch of us. There were like a group of about six or seven of us that were going up there for a discipleship conference in May before I was supposed to move the whole family up there uh, in August. And as we got up there in May and we're, we're, we're going around, this one friend of mine named Mike was speaking. And he walks in, and he's looking around one day, and he's talking. And he says, now this verse right here talks about being light. And to be light, you need to be in the midst of darkness. He said, you'll notice light really doesn't have any significance apart from being in the midst of darkness. And he gave this illustration, which I thought was great. He said, you, it was a, we were in a room like this with windows all around, and it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. He said, you know, if we flipped off the lights here right now, it's really not going to make a difference because there's plenty of light coming through. He said, now, however, if we come back to this room at 11 o'clock at night and we flip off these lights, going to have a very different approach. Going to be very different. Why? What makes light significant is it's in the midst of darkness. And all of a sudden when he said that, the lights came on and I thought, that's what it is. If I'm up here with seminary students every day, they'll drive me crazy. They're way too religious for me. And, and I thought, you know, I, I, I don't know what I would do. And then I thought, no, no, no. I, I, I need to be around people that are lost. And I thought, yeah, SC. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> uh, make, make perfect sense. You know, so, uh, so honestly, you know, for that, you know, we redirected our whole life from, from the cold to sunny Southern California because, you know, in that moment, I understood what he was talking about and what Jesus is speaking to these people about. For light to be significant, it needs to be in the midst of darkness. See, where you will really shine as light is when you're around some dark people, when you're around some situations that are dark, but what you have to do is you have to make sure that the things that are visible are really visible. 
in your life, the things that should be. And you have to make sure that you really illuminate the area that you're around. Now, this past summer, Melinda and I, we got to, uh, we got to go on this great trip. I mean, we were like, it was like, we were so excited. Our thoughts were rolling up down. But uh, we got to go over to Europe, and we got to go to uh, Italy. We got to go to Greece. And so one of the things while we were in Italy, we got to go to Rome. And I don't know about you. You probably, you know, most of you are probably, oh, Rome. I went there last week. You know, well, not us. Uh, that hadn't been uh, the case with us. We hadn't been there like ever. And so we go to Rome, and we're looking at everything. And there's so many historical things there. And we were taking them all in, and they were great. And we were looking around, and then one day we got to go to the Colosseum. And if you've never gotten to go to the Colosseum, well, you need to. And so we went there, and we were looking at it all over and checking it out and stuff and found out all sorts of facts about it. Like when we went inside, we found out that actually there were like four floors that went below the Colosseum. And like in some of the floors, they would have animals, and some of the floors they would have slaves and in some of the floors they would have some of the gladiators and stuff like that and they had these different openings where they would come up and come out into it and they had like four or five different openings so you never knew like if you were one of the guys out in the middle you never knew where your opponent was going to be coming out of so you might be looking over here and they would come out behind you so you had to be ready all the time and we also found out the floor of the Colosseum was made of wood now I always thought I watched Ben-Hur. It was not, uh, you know, but it was. What they did was they just covered it up with sand. And I thought, really? And they said, yeah. They said, kind of like a litter box. And I said, huh? And they said, yeah, the sand caught all the blood from the different things. And so they would just scoop out those clumps and take it out and put more sand in. And I thought, huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever read... You know, a, a little book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. The guy Gibbons that writes that seven-volume thing, he tells about a little guy who was a monk that lived in the fourth century. And his name was Telemachus. And Telemachus was this, he was just a wee little man and thought of himself as very ordinary. He was a gardener. He loved to garden. He just loved to take care of his little piece of land that he had right there. No thoughts of greatness. I mean, this guy thought, you know, hey, this is what I do. I just, I'm a gardener. But one day, he had this thought that God really wanted him to do something. And he really felt like God was leading him to go to Rome. And he thought, well, that's odd. But, you know, I ought to do it. God's leading him. So he did. And he begins to go to Rome. And as he goes into Rome, all of the army had just come back from a big battle, and the people are so excited, and they're kind of swept up. And they march in. He gets kind of swept up in the crowd and taken right along and ends up in the Colosseum. And he's looking there, and he's like, wow. I mean, it is a magnificent structure if you've never seen it. He's looking around at this place, and he is just like in marveling, wondering, why did God bring me here? And then he looks out, and he sees the gladiators out there beginning to do battle with some of them have you know these these big iron spiked balls on the ends of chains others have spears others have these swords and they are just whipping them around and just tearing each other to pieces and the crowd goes nuts and every time one of them starts bleeding profusely 
the crowd just goes crazy, and they're loving this. You know, they're rooting for more because fight to the death, fight to the death. That's what they did all the time. And he sees this, and he says, this is not what God wants. This is not how God intended for, for men to relate. This is not, this is not the, the, the thing that God wants happening right here. In other words, it's not the kingdom. And he goes down to the front and he goes, in the name of Christ, forbear, which is a word that means stop. You know, I mean, stop what you're doing. Don't do this, you know. He goes, in the name of Christ, forbear. No one listens to him, you know. And so he gets a little closer. He gets up on the wall that leads over into the uh, arena. And he yells, in the name of Christ, forbear. And all these people that are in the stands, they're just kind of looking at him. They're kind of laughing at him like, get out of here, you little monk, you know what I mean? And he just kind of, and he, he can't get him, so he jumps into the arena and he starts walking out and he's yelling, in the name of Christ, forbear. And the people up in the stands, they start picking up rocks and stones and they're throwing them at him, hitting him with him and knocking him over and stuff like that. And the gladiators are still just fighting. I mean, they're not even paying attention. They're still just fighting. Until finally he runs up and he gets between the two gladiators just as they're doing battle with each other. He jumps, he says, no, in the name of Christ forbear. And this one, <laughs> right through him. And he just kind of steps back. And between all of the stones that had hit him and between his sword, he just falls to his knees. And the gladiators stop and they see him and they're kind of like, that caught them off guard. They thought that was odd. So they both stop. And they look at him and they watch him begin to die and just fall down there. And they turn around and this, the crowd, you know, the crowd's all crazy. They're going nuts. They're looking around. And they look at this and all of a sudden they become silent. And all they can remember is his, his last words where he goes, in the name of Christ, forbear. And they all kind of look and they go, hmm. hmm. And one by one, at first, they begin to get up and leave. And then the whole arena empties out. I mean, it held thousands and thousands of people. They all left. They all walked out. And from that time, there's a uh, historian called uh, Theodotus, and he says, from that day forward, they never had another gladiator battle. That had been going on for 390 years. 390 years. 400,000 people had died within there. In fact, more than 400,000. 400,000 was a minimum number. Had died with these gladiator trials. One Christian. One Christian goes in. all the difference in the world. See, what Jesus said is, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the ones who will make the difference in this world. All you have to do is walk under the kingdom of God. Your significance is assured as you do that. Let's pray.
Father, we, uh, we face actually just the opposite uh, problem many times today. Um, we imagine significance in so many ways that um, we don't think of any of them oftentimes in conjunction with you. Uh, we think of significance uh, in terms of power, or we think of significance in terms of performance, or we think of it in terms of uh, companies and bank accounts and things that we would accomplish. And yet, Father, you have so much more. All of those things will one day come to an end. But you, Father, have given us opportunity for eternal significance and you've given us opportunity to really make a difference in the world in which we live today as we walk with you and we live under your lordship so father would you help us to have eyes to see clearly the things you've said and the things you the opportunities you've given us help us to buy those up and we pray those things father in the name of jesus Nice guy.